For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. And the rest of you, if you have a Bible with you, turn into the Gospel of John. That's the fourth book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, that's cool. The, the text is in your order of worship. You can follow along there. If you don't own a Bible, we've got a bunch in the back we'd love to give you. Um, few of you have taken us up on that over the time that we've been doing that, but I would love for, for more. If you don't own a Bible or if it's uh, the translation you've got is a little archaic, those are free. Those are yours. Go grab one. Um, we'd love to give you one. Let me remind us what we're doing here this morning. So a creed or a confession is simply a summary of what, what people believe the Bible teaches. Okay. Uh, now, some, maybe some of you, want to argue that they have no creed. I have no creed but Christ, right? Or, or no creed but the Bible. Frankly, that, that's intellectually dishonest. I mean, I hate to tell you that, but it is. It's intellectually dishonest. Uh, saying I have no creed but Christ assur- assumes certain things that you believe about Jesus. And so if I were to ask you those questions, I could write them down and you would have your creed. You have one. Uh, to say that you have no creed but the Bible is also not exactly true because a creed is simply what we believe the Bible teaches. So to say I have no creed but the Bible um, simply means that, that I have a creed. It's simply internal and it's how I understand the Bible. But, but we all have a creed. We all have some way in which we understand and summarize what we think the Bible teaches. And, and we're taking this fall to look at the Apostles' Creed, how the, the Christian church... Um, in, in, frankly, in all of its branches, has kind of brought together the core of what we think the Scripture teaches. Uh, and we're looking at the, the passages that inform that. So last week, as I said earlier, we looked at God the Father. Specifically, not just that He is God, Creator of heaven and earth, but that, that we, as Christians, have a unique relationship to God as Father. Something that is unique to Christianity. And this week we begin... Uh, the first of five sermons on what theologians call the person and work of Jesus. Who he is and what he did. Okay, Who he is and what he did. Jesus is kind of a big deal to Christians. I don't know if you knew this. He's kind of a big deal. Not just because of what he said, but specifically because of what he did and who he is. And so this week we're going to look to John 1 to see that he is the only son of God the Father and he is our Lord. So if you have your place in John chapter 1, as is our habit, I'd ask you to stand. Uh, I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 5 and then skipping down to verse 14. This is God's very word to us, friends. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's word, friends, given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time, we just ask your blessing. Would you meet us where we're at? Whether that is a place of expectant belief or of uh, skeptical unbelief. My guess is that we're somewhere in the middle, all of us. We need you. We need you to meet us where we are, to preach your gospel to us and to, to give us life. Help us to see you as the Lord, full of grace and truth, and to find our delight in that this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So uh, the, the mission, what, kind of our stated mission at Holy Cross, maybe you've heard these words before, you probably have, is that uh, we, uh, the mission of Holy Cross is to help people encounter Jesus, to know Jesus, and then to go and show Jesus, right? That that's, our, that's kind of how we understand the Bible giving the mission to the church. It's just our way of saying what is true of every church, honestly, or what should be true of every church. So that's every church's mission, because that's what Scripture says the church should be doing, okay? Uh, so now, but here's the thing. We, we talk about encountering Jesus, knowing Jesus, and showing Jesus, but my, my assumption in all of that is that no matter where you're at, we all, when I say where we're at, I mean in your understanding of who Jesus is and uh, whether or not you want to follow him. Um, my guess is that all of us, to some degree, need to be reminded about who Jesus is. Because you can be a Christian for a long time and then, and then, be, and then kind of miss who he is because he's very complex. And so we tend to lean on one side or the other, whether we want to lean on the fact that he is he is high and lifted up, or that he is uh, Jesus, my buddy. You know, we, we want to kind of lean on one of those two poles. And so, um, whether you've been a Christian a long time or you're not a Christian, we all need to be reminded who Jesus is. And, and one of those reasons is that, um, kind of harkens back to when, when I was younger. When I was in high school, I worked at Burger King. Glamorous, I know. Uh, it's a great, it, was a, it was a great job growing up. And I remember having several conversations with two of my coworkers, both who were named Chris, uh, and Chris and Chris, and I would sit after, after the shift was kind of winding down. I always worked night shift because I would work after school, uh, work four to close. And I'd, uh, as, as the shift was winding down, and we'd have discussions every once in a while about how we believed that Jesus was a failed political revolutionary. How after his death, his followers created a religion based on his teachings uh, due to their desire for power. That, that all of it was kind of this big fraud, and aren't these Christians really funny for believing all this stuff? Of course, I don't think that now. I'd be wasting my time up here. But, and, and frankly, if I, if I could, I would, I would go back and encourage my younger self to actually look at and, and try and, and seek to encounter Jesus See what the Bible actually says about Jesus. I mean, I had read some articles, some interesting thoughts by those who were touted as credible, but I'd never really been confronted with Jesus. I had assumed, and maybe you assume the same thing, that the Bible presented Jesus as a teacher. And, and, and of course, you and I both know, you don't crucify teachers, right? Even Socrates was just encouraged to drink the hemlock. It wasn't until college that I was confronted with who Jesus is, and he is nothing like what I thought. And so my goal this morning, whether you follow Jesus all your life or you're, this is your first time in a church, my goal this morning is to have you gaze upon Jesus. 
We're going to use John's gospel to help us do that. So we're going to look at this in three ways this morning. There's an outline, as always, in your bulletin that's helpful. We're going to look at, um, we're going to break this down the way the creed does. We're going to look at Jesus Christ, his only son, and we're going to look at our Lord, and then we're going to try and see his glory, okay? His only son, our Lord, and seeing his glory. So here, let's get started. The creed follows, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Like I said, we're going to break this down according to that. So look at verse 14. We're going to start at the, at the end of what I read. John says, the word. Now, the word is his way of describing Jesus, and we'll get back to that in a second. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, for many of us, our first hearing of the word Jesus Christ is, 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 is someone cursing, right? I mean, that, that's kind of common for us. And so, no matter what you have heard before, or what you have read in some Newsweek article around Easter. It's always around Easter. I don't know why. I guess they think that's going to sell magazines. But it's always around Easter. No matter what you've read, here's what every credible scholar of, the first, of first century history will tell you. Okay? During the reign of Tiberius Caesar, a man by the name of Jesus, which is his Greek version of his name, the, the Hebraic version of his name would have been Yeshua or Joshua, A man by the name of Jesus began traveling around the region of Judea and Galilee, which was north of Judea, teaching and performing miracles, well-attested, doing amazing things. And both what he said and what he was doing began to enliven the hopes of Jews that their God was finally coming to answer his long-expected promises of setting the world to rights. Eventually, this man ran afoul of the Jewish authorities of his day, who then had him arrested, accused him of being a revolutionary, a counter to Caesar, a revolutionary who sought to overthrow Rome, which would have been very common because Jews during the day had lots of them. They turned him over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who killed him via crucifixion. And then, after a few days... All of his followers, who had once been frightened and scattered, began traveling around both Judea and eventually the entire Mediterranean, declaring that this crucified Jew had been raised from the dead and was now established as the rightful ruler of the world. A belief that they kept proclaiming, even though it got them tortured and eventually killed. And in spite of all of those truths, in spite of the fact that that them going around the ancient world got them tortured, imprisoned, and killed, we have not one shred of evidence that a single one of them, of Jesus' earliest followers, ever denied what they had been saying. Ever. Even to the point of death. So when John says that the Word, and again, we're going to get to that in a second, became flesh... What we need to understand is that the Jesus that they are talking about is not a figment of someone's utterly amazing imagination, which, if he were a figment of someone's imagination, he would be so unlike any other figment of any other imagination that's ever been, you'd have to worship the guy who wrote about him because he would have been amazing. But this Jesus was seen, touched, and heard. He existed. There is no historical evidence otherwise. So to say, I believe in Jesus, is not equivalent to saying, I believe in fairies. Christianity is utterly tied to history. Utterly. If Jesus didn't exist, 
and what he did didn't happen, then none of it matters. None of the rest of it matters. And you and I are just wasting our time. We are, even as, again, one of Jesus' earliest followers, a man by the name of Paul said, we are more than all people to be pitied. This is important because the Bible and this creed that seeks to summarize some of his teachings is stubborn on this. The events matter. Jesus existed. Okay? But let's keep going, though, because John makes this startling claim here. Keep reading there in verse 14. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember how Christianity teaches this idea, this doctrine called adoption, right? That Christians believe that because of Jesus, we can relate to God as Father, and that God's fatherhood is not something that is indiscriminate, that is true to all, but is because of redemption, that his, his fatherhood is a a redeemed fatherhood, that we are redeemed and so become his children. John, literally, we are told that those whom Jesus redeemed, he gives the right to be called children of God. Right? With me? Okay. But here, though, John says Jesus is the only son. So what does that mean? Well, that word only son in in some of the older translations uh, is translated only begotten, right? So maybe you've heard that. Jesus Christ is only begotten son. Um, that's, a, that's a little bit of a translation mistake, but the phrase, has come, the phrase has come to mean what this word means. It means unique. It means one and only. And for you kind of Bible geeks who love to cross-reference things, this, is, this would have been the same kind of word that was used when, when, um, when Isaac, the son of Abraham, is described. He's Abraham's son, his only son, the son he loves. Same word. Um, Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. Now, if you're familiar with Greek mythology or like the Percy Jackson book series, like this, should, this you're like, so what? Lots of people believed in uh, deities having procreating and, and having kids. That is true in, in myths, but let me give you two reasons why, this, why what we're talking about here is very different. First, Christianity sprang from Judaism, right? Christianity sprang from Judaism, claims to be the continuation, even the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And in a Jewish worldview, the idea of the gods procreating, of God procreating, is offensive and crazy. That doesn't happen. That's nutty, okay? So second, you have this word glory, right? We have seen his glory that John talks about here. Glory is something that in the Old Testament is uniquely tied to God, God has glory. Glory is of God. It is where God is, there his glory is, right? And so the most famous place where this is true in the Old Testament is this tent. I know you're like, a tent? Yes, a tent. The the Israelites had a tent that went with them as they wandered from the wilderness, from, from Egypt into the Promised Land, and it was called the Tabernacle. And in that tent is where the glory of God dwelt. Interestingly enough, When John says, in verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word that he uses there is tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. John is saying that there is something utterly unique about Jesus, such that he is the residing place of the glory of God. And that this glory was seen 
And what, what he means by that, some, of, some translations say beheld, we beheld his glory. That doesn't mean like in a vision. It means physically. It's a very specific word that he uses in the Greek. It means he physically saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Okay, last thing on this. John says he's full of grace and truth. Again, these are things, grace and truth, that the Bible uniquely ties to God, okay? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Truth is, according to the Bible, something that comes from God and something that is uniquely tied to God because he is the root and ground of all truth. He is the truth. And John tells us that Jesus is full of these things. So let me be clear on something. Some of us have been fooled into thinking that the Bible presents Jesus... As, as more or less the way philosophy presents Plato, right? Maybe you're familiar with uh, Greek philosophy and Plato. He's a good teacher. He's given us all these things. We're not really sure much about his life, but it's his teachings that matter. He's a, so we think that Jesus is a good guy. He's got great ideas. Maybe he's in someone to emulate. That idea cannot be found in the New Testament. It can't be. Jesus is the unique Son of God in whom dwelt the glory of God, the truth of God, and the grace of God. Something utterly unique was going on in Jesus that has never and will never happen again. He is totally unlike any before and after him. Still with me? Now... Let's keep going, because we pulled that verse out of order, right? That's the end of our passage. We pulled that out of order as a, as a teaching tool. So, so why Jesus is utterly unique will make more sense as we move on. Because you could go away from this thinking that Christianity just kind of teaches that Jesus is some higher order of being, some angelic being maybe. I mean, he's, he's utterly unique. Yes, he's unlike anything that we've seen before, but, but he's just kind of some higher order of creature. And some groups that claim to be Christian teach that, right? Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they, they hold to this idea that Jesus is some higher form of creature. Now, that is actually a, a teaching that is very ancient. It was rejected in the fourth century of the church. It's called Arianism. Um, but what that would eventually give us is the idea that Jesus was a really great dude who, who looked like he was human, but he was really just kind of this higher order of being. The Bible presents Jesus as not a really great dude. I mean, he was, but not in the way you're thinking. And he's not like a heavenly being who looked human. It is far more wonderful than that. Look down at verses 1 to 3. This is an amazing passage. John says, in the beginning. And those words take us back to the first words of the Bible itself. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is being intentional. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. This passage is is communicating something that is central to Christianity. That Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That designation, the word, is a way of helping to explain this mystery. Because you see, Christianity, like Judaism, is stubborn about the fact that there is only one God. One God. And yet, there is this complexity in God and and in in the gospel narratives of Jesus' life that we have to account for. Because, you see, what we see in the gospels is Jesus praying to God. Praying to God the Father. God the Father speaking to Jesus and to others about Jesus. This is my Son, 
And yet, we see Jesus being worshipped, which was a big no-no if you're not God. Big no-no in Judaism. Don't worship anything but God. Jesus is being worshipped. Jesus is claiming divine prerogatives for himself, like forgiving sin. Only, and people would raise up and go, hey, only God can forgive sin. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. And your sins are forgiven. Right? And so when John says that the word was with God, that preposition that we translated with, it doesn't mean spatially, like right now I am with Peter. It's not, it's, it has nothing to do with nearness. It has to do with association. It has to do with relationship. It has to do with an association between two persons. The word is in relationship with. Because you see, in Christianity, God is one in essence, but three in persons. One what and three who's. And this is why in Christianity, God is love. Okay, maybe, maybe you never thought about this before, so let me help you with this. Um, God in Christianity is love because God is relational from all eternity. Like before there ever was anything, God is in three persons relating with himself. A singular being cannot be loving until it has created. It can be powerful. It can be pure, but it cannot be love. Which, frankly, is why Christians do not believe that the God of the Bible and Allah are the same dude. They're not. One's all power and needs to be obeyed, and one is love and wants to be related to. Just to drive this home for us, John tells us that everything was created through Jesus and that nothing that has been made was made apart from him. Which means that if he was created, it's not possible. Because everything that has been created was created through him. He is God. The word became flesh. The word which became flesh in Jesus is God. That is what the creed means by Lord. His only son, our Lord. When, when the, in the Old Testament, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when it went from Hebrew into Greek, um, in in the Hebrew Bible, it is uh, hmm, there. There were peccadillos about saying God's name. The name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh, and and because no one wanted to take His name in vain, they just decided, hey, we're just not going to say His name. And so the way they would translate Yahweh into Greek was by saying Lord, or in Greek Kyrios. So every time in the Old Testament where you see the word Lord, especially in all capital letters, that is the divine name of God. And in the New Testament, when a pious Jew were to say Lord, they didn't just mean uh, some really good dude that I need to kind of listen to. They meant God. To call Jesus Lord in the New Testament is to say that Jesus is God. But let's keep going, though, with life and light. John says, in him was life. And that life, this life, was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right. This is really important, but it's a little technical. So I just, I need you to kind of check back in and follow me if you can. In him was life. That sounds like a big duh, right? I mean, he was alive. Isn't that what that means? No, actually, it's not what that means. What this means was not that he was living, but that Jesus had life in and of himself. You and I are dependent creatures. Life does not necessarily reside in us. We need other things to live. The Bible teaches that all of creation is contingent. All of creation is dependent on God, who is the source of life. 
Theologians call it God's aseity. That he is, he exists in and of himself. That is what this means. Jesus, the word, has life in and of himself. He's not dependent. He is not like us in that way. And that little truth begins to speak to what he came to do. And so also does this idea of light. John says this life was the light of men. Because you see, the Bible teaches that we were made to be dependent on God, to find our, all of our meaning, all of our worth, everything in him, but that we betrayed him, believing that we could be independent, that you and I could have life in and of ourselves, that we needed to, in fact, because we couldn't depend on God. So we want life apart from him. We want value apart from him. We want meaning apart from him. We want to be masters of our own destiny. And that betrayal that we have, that we have done against the Lord, against God, that, that turning away from him, seeking our independence, is what the Bible calls sin. And that left us guilty and alienated from the God that we were made to find our life in. Guilty, alienated, and stuck in that kind of life. And one of the ways the Bible describes that that way of being, that stuckness, is darkness. That we dwell in darkness. So Jesus, the word, the one that we betrayed, came to be light for us. To shine in the darkness. And when John says the darkness couldn't overcome it, he's speaking ultimately about the fact that the work, the, the person and work of Jesus was greater than our darkness could ever be. It's speaking of the cross. He bore our very darkness, but he overcame it. Don't miss this, because this is important. We're in the valley, and in the valley, the phrase, Jesus died for my sins, is about as common as, like, can we go to the grocery store next week? And it's in the air, even if you don't believe it. But see, there's this thought that God found this dude named Jesus who was a pretty good guy, and, and, and maybe what he did was he just he punished him for other people. And isn't that kind of lame? Like, why would you do that? That seems unjust. Or there's this idea that Jesus kind of came to buy off God so that God could love us. But don't you see? The Word was God. The Word is God. In Him was life. In Jesus, God came to rescue us. In Jesus, God came to bear the punishment due for our sins. Jesus didn't make God love us. In Jesus, God is loving us. That's the glory of the passage that that John is trying to get across. Now, let me try and bring this home to us by seeing his glory uh, in two ways. First, let's look at the central claim. If you take nothing else from this sermon... If you take nothing else from this sermon, take this. Jesus is God. And some of you don't buy this, and that's cool. I mean, obviously, I've been there. I talked about that before. But make sure you hear me. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus can't be just a good teacher. Because Jesus claimed to be God. If he's wrong, he's crazy. He's not a good teacher. He's a nutcase. You know what we do with people who claim to be God, right? White coats, arms wrapped around them, lots of drugs. If he's wrong, he's crazy. But if he's right, your thoughts of God get transformed. You see, if Jesus is God, that means God doesn't just want you to obey him. He wants to be with you. 
If Jesus is God, that means God isn't looking for you to get your act together. It means he came to rescue you. If Jesus is God, then God knows what it's like to be us. And he doesn't despise it. We'll look more at that next week. And if Jesus is God, then the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing one was willing to become like us to rescue us. Can you even fathom that? The creator becoming part of his creation. But if Jesus is God, that also means that we can't pretend to take some things that he says seriously and disregard the others. If Jesus is God, then to say no to him is not like choosing Pepsi over Coke. (laughs) If Jesus is God, then we can't be nonchalant about him. You cannot sit on the fence here. Which is not to say that you can't explore the claims and figure them out. It means that you can't go on thinking that you're okay not making a decision. If he isn't who he said he is, then the dude is crazy. And nothing, nothing that he said is worth listening to. But if he's God, then everything's got to change. Lastly, let's look at grace and truth. John makes this incredible claim that tends to wash over us, especially if you've been a Christian a long time because you've probably said it a million times. You haven't really thought about what it means. You just say it. It's like let go and let God. And nobody in this room know what that means. But a lot of y'all say it. Okay? I don't know what it means either. So, yeah. Grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Here's what we need to think about this. When you and I tend to think about God, we think about him probably in one of two poles. There's the grace pole, where God lets us go our own way and smiles as we do it. And then there's the truth pole, where God is waiting to smite us if we don't get in line. In one, he tells us the utter, unstoppable truth about ourselves, and in the other, he just kind of winks and smiles and says, aren't you sweet? Here's what the gospel says to us. If you don't have both, you don't have either. If you don't have both a God of both grace and truth, you don't have a God of grace or truth. Here's what I mean. If your view of God is truth with no grace, can I tell you, you will never be anything but judged. Never. You will never be anything but judged because you and I will always come up short I know some of us don't think that because we view kind of um, we we view performing for God like we view um, outrunning a bear or a lion. Like you don't have to outrun the bear or the lion; you just outrun the guy next to you. And if he's running faster than you, you trip him, right? And then the bear eats him, and you keep going. But that's that's the game that we play when we play comparison. When I look around and go, my standard is Daniel, or my standard is Brandon, or and we go. All I have to do is make sure I'm performing better than them. The standard is Jesus. The standard is God himself. And this is why grace is grace. But listen, if your God is all truth and no grace, your God isn't truth. Because God is gracious. That is truth as well. God came in Jesus to rescue you out of grace. God offers us reconciliation with him out of 
grace, not our performance. Without grace, God is a liar. He's not the truth at all. But the same is true the other way. If your God is all grace and and no truth, true, you won't be judged, but you also won't be known. What I mean is that you will never believe that God actually knows you because he just sits there while you betray him with that dumb smile on his face. He doesn't seem to understand what's happening. And sure, you're happy because you're not getting punished, but does he know me? Does he care about me? Because it seems to me that the people I care about most, when I hurt them, they're affected by it. Does he care? You see, we tend to think love is letting us do whatever we want whenever we want to do it, but it isn't. If my family's on a vacation to a large aquarium and it's outside and it's a really hot day and my kids are like, there's a pool, can I go jump in it? I'm really, really hot. And that pool is full of hungry sharks. It is not loving to let my children jump in the pool no matter how hot they are, no matter how much they would scream and how unfair I am. To let my children jump in a pool full of sharks doesn't make me loving, it makes me a monster. To say that God will love me by letting me do anything I want, no matter how self-destructive, doesn't make him loving. It makes him a monster. Not someone to worship. Without God telling us the truth about who we are, what we've done, and how, we've, how we were made to live, grace isn't grace. And if God isn't gracious, then he isn't telling the truth about our situation. You and I aren't a little broken, needing a little bit of reformation. We are devastatingly broken and in need of rebirth. But see, the God of either grace or truth is not the God we see in Jesus. Not if we take the entirety of what we're told of him together. He is the God who says, then neither do I condemn you. But at the same time, he says, so therefore go and sin no more. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry, what you've done is no big deal. No, no, he's saying it's a very big deal. What you've done is devastating to you, to the world. It, it has is, it is offended a holy God, but I am willing to love you enough to die for it. He's the only one in which we can be fully known in the depths of our being. Those pieces of us that we don't want to tell, that we don't want to show. That he can know us, and at the same time, he's loved us. Jesus comes and he tells us who we are that we haven't measured up, but he loves us and offers us not just pardon, but life with him. To follow him, to be made new by him. He is glorious, friends. He's unlike anyone else. There's no one like him. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who as another creed says, for us and for our salvation, took a human nature, became part of his creation never losing his divinity, never watering it down or or mixing it up, being filled with grace and truth. He is the only God who loves you completely when you failed him utterly. So come and worship him and him alone. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you promised that when you were lifted up, you would draw all people to yourself. And that, of course, was talking about the cross. 
But now, Lord, we lift you up. For there is none like you. You are fully God and fully man. Light of light, God of God, very God of very God. There is no one like you. You are full of grace and truth. Our minds can't even comprehend that, and so we limit you to one or the other, but you push and resist that. If you weren't more than we could understand, you would not be worth worshiping, and we would be stuck in our sins. And so we welcome the mystery. We welcome you being greater than us, and we ask that as we lift you up, you would draw us to yourself. We ask that as as we come out of this, your spirit would be working to massage these truths and to drive them deep into our hearts so that in our worship, in our celebration of the sacrament, we would find joy and life. We would respond as such. For my friends here who have never claimed you, who have never rested alone upon you, I ask that you would work as you did in me. For I didn't change my opinions on you because I studied more. (laughs) It's too arrogant to do that. My opinions changed on you because you kicked the door of my heart open and came in and made made me new. And so I pray that you would do the same with those here who don't know you, with the rest of us who do. I pray you would drive us to worship you. And that even if for a moment we might catch a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and be in awe. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.